I'd like for us to turn tonight, to start with, to Jonah chapter 2. Goes Jonah, Micah, Nahum, some one of those little books there towards the end of the Old Testament. Jonah chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 7. The context here is Jonah is, at this point, within the belly of the great fish and basically uttering a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And we're kind of jumping in here in the middle, uh, starting in verse 7. While I was fainting away, bobbing around out there in the water, (laughs) while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Well, many times in the scriptures, God teaches his people by using very direct and very clear statements of doctrinal truth. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Clear, direct, simple enough for a child to understand. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just a clear, direct statement of truth. But that's not the only way that God teaches his people. God is also able to teach through the use of circumstances and events that are ordered and directed by him for the purpose of explaining and illustrating theological truth. And that's what we see here in the life of Jonah. Here in chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah gives us one of these direct statements of doctrinal truth when he says, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. But the question is, how did Jonah learn this truth? Did he have to read a theology book? Did he have to enroll in a class at a Bible school? No, he learned it by experience. He learned this truth by providential circumstances that were ordered and directed by God to bring Jonah to the place where he could say, from the heart... Salvation is from the Lord. And it's a familiar story. God speaks to Jonah, and he commands him to go and prophesy to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire at that time. So what does Jonah do? Well, he hops on the first boat that he can find, going in the opposite direction away from Nineveh. But he finds out quickly that it's not that easy to run away from God. And while he's on the boat, God, it says in the scriptures, God hurls a great wind. (laughs) It's quite a statement, isn't it? God hurls a great wind on the sea, causing a terrible storm that threatens to destroy the ship that Jonah is on. And Jonah realizes that this storm is on account of him. So he instructs the crew of the ship to throw him overboard into the raging water. And as soon as Jonah is thrown overboard, the sea stops its raging and the storm calms, right? Well, you don't have to be 
a suntanned sailor to know that raging seas usually aren't calmed by throwing somebody overboard. It doesn't usually work that way, right? So what's the lesson here? The lesson is salvation is from the Lord. Something supernatural about this. You might say, well, that's nice for the men still on the ship. What about poor Jonah? He's out there bobbing around now in the middle of the sea. What about him? Well, go back to chapter 1, verse 17. It says, and the Lord appointed, not incredible, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, saving him out of that ocean, out of the sea. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And then in the following verses, Jonah offers this prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for sending the fish to save him, to keep him from drowning there in the middle of the sea. And he ends his prayer of thanksgiving with this exclamation there in verse 9. Salvation is from the Lord. So do you see what's happened here? God has taught Jonah a theological truth through the use of these providentially ordered circumstances and events. And he got the message, didn't he? He was a reluctant student, but Jonah learned the lesson that God was teaching him. He learned that salvation is from the Lord. He ordains it. He controls it. He brings it to pass. And then to drive home the point one last time, because like any good teacher, you always drive the point home once more, right? There in verse 10, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. It's as if God is saying to Jonah, Okay, you got the message. Salvation is for me. Now let me show you once more just how much salvation belongs to me. And he commands this fish, spits Jonah out, not onto, not back into the water, not even out onto damp land. He spits Jonah out onto dry land, totally dry. He's done with being in the water. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, when Jonah says that, that salvation is from the Lord, I think he was referring primarily to physical salvation, physical deliverance. I say that because in the context here, God had just saved Jonah from physical death, and he was praising God for that. But when you consider the Bible as a whole, you see that Jonah's statement here takes on a far deeper and more significant meaning. As is often the case in the Old Testament, there are these statements that are more physical and temporal in nature. But then as you move into the New Testament, they take on a spiritual and eternal meaning. And we see in the New Testament that not only is salvation from the Lord in terms of physical deliverance, although that's true, but salvation is from the Lord also in terms of a person's eternal spiritual salvation. And that's the particular truth that I want to encourage you with tonight, that when it comes to the eternal spiritual salvation of an individual soul, salvation is from the Lord. And I want to take a few minutes here to show you this from the Scriptures, and then I want to give you several reasons why I'm thankful that it's true and why you should be thankful too. But before we look at any more verses, I want to make it clear here exactly what I'm saying when I say that salvation is from the Lord in a spiritual and eternal sense. What I mean is that the ultimate and decisive factor that determines the eternal salvation of an individual is the gracious action of God on their behalf. Let me say that one more time. It's a mouthful. The ultimate and decisive factor that determines the eternal salvation of an individual 
is the gracious action of God on their behalf. I'm not saying that there are no other factors involved in a person's salvation. I'm not saying that the individual person has no part to play whatsoever in salvation. But what I am saying is that in the final analysis, the reason why person A became a Christian and person B never did is because God did something for person A that he did not do for person B. The ultimate and decisive factor that determines the eternal salvation of an individual is the gracious action of God on their behalf. Or to say it in Jonah's language, salvation is from the Lord. And I'd like to see this here, first of all, from the scriptures themselves before we get into any application. And we're just going to look at two verses or two passages in brief, and then we'll look at two more passages a little bit more in depth before we get to some application here. So starting in 2 Timothy, verse, or, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul's writing to Timothy here, and he says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us. Notice that God who has saved us, he saved us, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not according to what we've done, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, what do we see here? We see that God saved us. God called us, and he did it in accordance with a plan that he had from all eternity. Salvation is from the Lord. Another uh, passage here, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. Again, Paul is writing here, and notice how he includes himself in this statement. For we also, even me, Paul says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. Listen to this language. He's talking about lost men here. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out, see that over and over again, he, 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 whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, 
we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He did it. He saved us. He washed us. He sanctified us. He justified us. He poured out His Spirit upon us over and over again. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, two more passages, a little bit more in depth here. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we'll read the first eight verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, natural birth. That which is born of the Spirit, born again, is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I want to just point out three things here. First of all, the subject of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is eternal spiritual salvation. Jesus is talking about seeing and entering into the kingdom of God. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So to see and to enter into the kingdom of God is salvation language. So the subject here, the subject, the topic of the conversation is eternal salvation. That's the first point. Secondly, notice that what is required to see and to enter into the kingdom is new birth. In other words, salvation depends upon being born again, clear as day. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus is talking here about eternal salvation, and he says that in order to obtain this salvation, one must be born again. All right? Thirdly, then, we get to the crux of the issue here, because the logical next question is, well, if you've got to be born again, then how is someone born again? And Jesus tells us right here in the passage, doesn't he? Look again at verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, notice the very next phrase out of Jesus' mouth. The wind. The wind. 
Why is that significant? Because it shows us that when it came down to being born again, Jesus did not throw the ball back into Nicodemus's court. You must be born again, Nicodemus, and here's what you need to do to accomplish that. Let me tell you how to do it. It's not what he says. You must be born again, Nicodemus. The wind. The wind. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see that? Jesus directs him to the wind. And what's the wind that he's talking about here? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. He says that at the end. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what do we see then when we put all of this together? We see that in order for someone to enter into the kingdom of God, in order for them to obtain salvation, they must be born again. It's not optional. You must. And the way in which they are born again is by the gracious activity of God, the Holy Spirit, to bring about new birth. The wind blows where it wishes. We have a good illustration of this, don't we, back in the Old Testament with Ezekiel and that valley of dry bones. Ezekiel could have prophesied until he was blue in the face to those dry bones. Nothing was going to happen. Nothing. Until the wind starts blowing, right? Until the wind picks up. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says. So again, I say that the ultimate and decisive factor that determines the eternal salvation of an individual is the gracious action of God on their behalf. Salvation is from the Lord. One other passage here, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Apparently in this town, uh, there there weren't enough Jewish converts there uh, to have a synagogue. Uh, I think they had to have 10 Jewish men, I think it was, to constitute a synagogue, and apparently there weren't enough. Um, so instead of meeting in a synagogue, they met outside, these women did, met outside uh, next to this river for prayer. We were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Now, when it says she was a worshiper of God, this is something you see several times in the book of Acts. Sometimes they're called God-fearers. It's talking about a Gentile convert to Judaism, somebody who was not raised Jewish. They were raised as a Gentile, but they had converted to Judaism at some point later in their lives. It's not saying she was a Christian. She was a, she was a converted Jew, uh, had converted to Judaism. 
And you see that several times in the book of Acts with other uh, individuals as well. Anyway, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And again, I want to point out three things from this account. First of all, notice that Lydia was not the only woman at this assembly where Paul was speaking. Go back to verse 13. It says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who would assemble. There's a group of women here, a group of Jews, Jewish women. Some of them probably were, some of them were Jewish by birth or raised in a Jewish home. Some of them were Gentile converts to Judaism. But nevertheless, there was a group of them here, Jewish women. So apparently Lydia was just one among a group of women who met at this particular place for prayer and for keeping the Jewish Sabbath. Secondly, second point, of the women who were assembled, Lydia was the only one who responded to Paul's message. As far as we know, she was the only one who responded to the message. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken. By Paul. And as far as we can tell, she was the only one who responded to the message. As I mentioned, anyone else here, any other converts? And then she's baptized in the next verse. So, in other words, what we see here in this passage is we see the salvation of this woman named Lydia. She goes from being a Jewish convert to being a convert to Christianity, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third point why was it? that Lydia responded to the things spoken by Paul when the other women who were listening apparently did not. What was the ultimate and decisive factor in Lydia's salvation? Well, again, it tells us right here in the verse, doesn't it? Verse 14, And the Lord opened, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Why did Lydia respond? Because the Lord opened her heart. Because her heart was opened by the Lord. Did Lydia open her own heart? It's not what the text says. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken. Someone might say, yeah, but Lydia freely chose Christ. She had to choose. And she chose Christ. I agree. Completely. She chose Christ. She did. The text plainly says that Lydia responded to Paul's message. She chose Jesus. But the question is, why did Lydia choose Christ? Why did she respond when the other women who were listening did not? Was she smarter than the rest of them? Was she a little less of a sinner than the rest of them? No. She chose Christ because God first did something for Lydia that he did not do for the other women who were there. He opened her heart to respond. So do you see the truth being illustrated here? Again, the ultimate and decisive factor that determines the eternal salvation of an individual 
is the gracious action of God on their behalf. Salvation is from the Lord. What I'd like to do then with the rest of our time is give you several reasons why I'm thankful that this is true, this truth of salvation being from the Lord. I praise God that salvation is from the Lord, and I want to give you reasons why in the hope that you would praise him for this truth as well. And I've got five things here. I started with ten. I whittled it down to five, so you you can thank me later. Um, Number one, I'm thankful that salvation is from the Lord because it means that the salvation of souls is a certainty. It means that the salvation of souls is a certainty. And let me explain what I mean. If what the Bible says about fallen humanity is true, then there are only two options regarding the salvation of sinners. And here they are. Option one, the ultimate and decisive factor in salvation is something God does, and at the end of time, heaven will be filled with the sound of redeemed sinners singing praises to God forever. That's option one. Option two The ultimate and decisive factor in salvation is something man must do for himself. And at the end of time, heaven will be empty. And every person who has ever lived will be in hell forever. Biblically speaking, those are the only two options. Now someone says, well, wait a second, that can't be right. Even if salvation was left totally up to man, surely someone would choose Christ. Surely someone would repent and believe on Jesus. Even if God left mankind totally alone, surely someone would believe the message. Someone would be saved. Really? I thought Jesus said that you must be born again. Yeah, but someone could be born again through their own effort. You know, squint their eyes and poof. Really? That's not what Jesus said. He said only the wind can do it. See, I know that there's people that don't like this doctrine, that salvation is from the Lord. But the reason why they don't like it is because they don't believe that fallen men really are as bad off as the Bible says they are. That's what it comes down to. Fallen men, according to the Bible, are not just sick. They're dead. They're dead. They don't seek after God. Their minds and their wills are corrupted. They hate the light. They're slaves to sin, haters of God, and enemies of God. All of those are biblical phrases regarding the lost person, the lost sinner. Now you tell me how a person in that condition is ever going to turn away from their sin and choose Christ. They're not going to. It's like a criminal choosing to chase after a police officer. It's like a cockroach choosing to run towards the light. They don't do that. It's not in their nature. How is a person in that condition ever going to turn away from their sin and choose Christ? They're not. Never. They never will. Unless God does something first. You see? Unless the wind starts to blow and those dry bones start coming together. Unless God opens their heart to respond. And praise God, that is exactly what he does. 
we sing that hymn, Oh, the Wonder of Wonders. It has that one stanza in it. Not that I first did choose him, for that could not be. Still this heart would refuse him had he left it to me. I'd still fight that battle that no man can win. I'd still bar the heart's door that letteth him in. Were it not for him, I'd still be barring this door. Praise God that he is in the business of opening part doors. That's what he does. Were that not the case, no fallen son of Adam would ever willingly choose Christ. And heaven would be a silent place for all eternity. But salvation is from the Lord. And therefore it's certain. And heaven will be filled with a multitude which no man can number, praising God for all eternity for this truth, that salvation is from the Lord. It's the song of heaven. Now, a side note here, just a personal note. When I was wrestling with these things, sovereignty, election, predestination, all these different things, I started to see them. Biblically, but it wasn't until I first saw how sinful, how bad, how corrupt man really is that I started to rejoice in these truths. So I would just encourage you that if you're wrestling with these things, I would I would stop studying election directly, predestination, all this stuff. Study the doctrine of sin. Go back to that. Because when you see what the Bible says about the sin of man and how badly sin has corrupted man, then you start to see the glory of this truth because you realize that were it not for God taking the initiative, no one would be saved. Number two, I am thankful that salvation is from the Lord because it gives great confidence and power in prayer. And beloved, we need to be reminded of this truth as it relates specifically to prayer. Because nothing will give you as much confidence, nothing will inspire as much faith when praying for lost souls as remembering that salvation is from the Lord. It does not matter how hopeless the situation. It does not matter how long the rebellion has gone on. Brother Mike Cleary, how long did this church pray for you? Over 25 years. Mike said, I'm never going back to Kirksville. I hate that church. I'm not going back there. (laughs) 25 years praying for his soul. It does not matter how long the rebellion. It does not matter how wicked and backward the lifestyle. It does not matter how deep into the pit of sin a person has sunk. No one is beyond the ability of God to save. No one. No one. No one. Why? Because salvation is from the Lord. Because he will have mercy upon whom he has mercy. Because it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. Romans 9. Thieves. Check. Prostitutes. Check. Serial killers. Look up the testimony of David Berkowitz, son of Sam, serial killer, now converted in prison. 
drug users. Beloved, we know of people who were saved while they were high on drugs. Some of you have heard the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a tenured professor of English at Syracuse University. Pretty prestigious post. And she was a lesbian. And she had published articles, several articles, in the areas of feminism and queer theory. I mean, she was on the front lines of this stuff. Now, she's a pastor's wife (laughs) with a a family. And an ever-expanding ministry testifying to the gospel. Beloved, aren't you thankful that salvation is from the Lord? Aren't you thankful for that? If that doesn't inject your prayers with tremendous confidence, nothing will. Thirdly, I am thankful that salvation is from the Lord because it makes the gospel message divinely powerful. Now, some would argue that this doctrine that I'm talking about here doesn't make the gospel message powerful, but powerless, or even worse, unnecessary. After all, if salvation is from the Lord, then we don't even need to share the gospel with people, right? God can just save them anyway. Well, what's wrong with that way of thinking? What's wrong with it is it ignores the fact that the way in which God saves sinners is through the proclamation of the gospel message. Salvation is from the Lord does not mean that God just zaps people out of nowhere with his salvation lightning, and bam, they're saved. Just walking down the street and... Didn't even know what happened. No. It's through the message of truth, it's through the message of the gospel and the proclamation of that message... It's through that that God saves. And we already saw that with Lydia, didn't we? It was as Paul was preaching that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that Paul was talking about. God worked through the proclamation of the truth to save her. Think of it like this. The proclamation of the message, the gospel message, is like an electrical cord that the power of God flows through in order to bring about the salvation of a soul. We see this also in another place. I'll just read this one to you. This is from 2 Thessalonians. Listen to Paul here. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel. You see that? God called you through our gospel, through the preaching of the gospel, through the message of the gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I'm thankful that salvation is from the Lord because it makes the proclamation of the gospel message divinely powerful. The message shared, the simple gospel message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That simple gospel message is the very means through which the all-powerful God can bring about the eternal salvation of a soul.
So the Apostle Paul says, I'm ready to go to Rome even. I'm ready to go to Rome and to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'll take this message to Rome even and preach. You really mean that, Paul? I mean, you even know what Rome is like? The intellectual arrogance? The decadence? The perversion? Paul says, yeah, I'm going to Rome. Because the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God. It has omnipotence behind it. The message shared is the very means through which the all-powerful God can work to bring about eternal salvation. This doesn't make the gospel message powerless. It makes it divinely powerful. Whether in Rome, London, New York, Chicago, Las Vegas, don't care where you go, the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe Divinely powerful. Number four. Two more. Hang in there. Number four. I am thankful that salvation is from the Lord because it frees me from the snare of needing to have all the answers. Now, I don't care how learned you are. I don't care how well-read you are. At some point in your Christian life, you're going to be asked questions by unbelievers that you don't know the answers to. (laughs) Have you experienced that? If you've ever done any outreach at all, you're going to experience that, or just any one-on-one conversation at all with unbelievers. What does this verse mean? How could God allow that to happen? How do you explain these contradictions in the Bible, etc., etc., etc.? And there was a time in my Christian life when it really bothered me when I couldn't answer every question and objection that someone had. Because after all, eternity is at stake, isn't it? If I can't answer this person's questions, they're going to be even more set in their unbelief and probably end up in hell, and it's going to be my fault because I couldn't answer their question. I couldn't answer their objection. If that's you, then this truth will set you free from that snare, that salvation is from the Lord. And because it is from the Lord, the ultimate and decisive factor in a person's salvation is not my ability to answer their questions. The ultimate decisive factor is the gracious activity of God. And even when I can't answer all the questions, even when I can't answer all the objections, God can still save. It's so freeing, isn't it? I mean, what this means is, is next time someone asks you a question that you can't answer, you can just smile and say, I'm sorry, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure on that. That's it. Isn't that freeing? You don't have to be discouraged by that. So what? God is still God. He's still in control, and he's still in the business of opening people's hearts, whether I can perfectly answer all of their questions or not. Number five, last one. I am thankful that salvation is from the Lord because it allows me, as a parent, 
to sleep at night. As a Christian parent, my greatest desire for my children is that they would come to know the Lord. And my greatest fear is that I'm going to do something to jeopardize that. You ever felt that? If I'm too soft on them, then they'll get the impression that God is just a big marshmallow who doesn't have any standards. But if I'm too harsh with them, then they'll get the impression that God is some killjoy, some cosmic grump with no grace and love in his heart. What do you do? And what about when I mess up and I sin right in front of my children? Are they going to think that this whole Christianity thing is just a joke? There's no reality there, no real power behind it. Christians are just hypocrites. I wouldn't want that. Bunch of hypocrites. As a parent, you can lose your mind over this stuff. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you parents here. And you will lose your mind over it until you learn to rest in the truth that salvation is from the Lord. Yes, you strive to teach your children the scriptures. Yes, you cry out to God for them. Yes, you bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But at the end of the day, you know that you have not done any of those things perfectly. And some days, you just flat mess up royally. But you can still lay your head on your pillow at night and you can say, Lord, you know. And Lord, you're able. And you can sleep. Because salvation is from the Lord. It's not an excuse for bad parenting. It's the guardian of a parent's sanity. You hear me? It's not an excuse for bad parenting. But it will keep you sane as a parent.